go out there and play the game as if it's your dance with the game. Don't go out there and play as it's your validation of yourself in the game. Nobody cares. Welcome back to another part train. This is your host, Evan Singer. Mr. Cermak couldn't make it, so it was just me and sports psychologist, Dr. Brett McCabe. Before we get to this incredible conversation and episode, um, if you're new, thanks for joining. Uh, the part train is all about making life less frustrating than your golf game. Okay, we feature interviews from PGA Tour pros, best selling authors, CEOs, sports psychologists, and more. You'll learn to laugh through every up and down harness the power of the mind, and get back on track both on and off the course. If you don't follow us currently on all the social channels, feel free to follow us at The Par Train on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. And we appreciate all you guys that have listened over the last four years um, and following along. If you guys haven't filled out a iTunes uh, review, please do that. Uh, that actually helps us a lot. So get in there, leave us a review. We'd really appreciate it. Also, guys, it's hot out, Okay. You got to go to rollback.com and enter the code love train and get yourself 20% off. A lot of new summer polos just dropped. The t-shirts should be restocked soon. Every person I give this code to loves the rollback gear that they get. No one's ever complained. Go to rollback.com, enter the code love train and get yourself some discounted gear. All right. Let me tell you about Dr. Brett McCabe. This was one of my most favorite conversations. Uh, we could have gone on for four hours, um, but we went on for over an hour. And Brett McCabe over the last 10 years has become a trusted resource for a lot of athletes, especially on the PGA Tour, whether that's PGA Tour, Web.com, or Corn Ferry, LPGA, et cetera. In 2018 alone, his professional clients won 11 times worldwide and amassed over $16 million in earnings. Additionally, Dr. McCabe is the sports and performance psychologist for the University of Alabama Athletic Department, where, uh, have you heard of him? He provided services to all the sports, including 2016 and 2018 National Championship football teams. Um, but Brett's not just a coach. He was an athlete. As a four-year letterman at the LSU baseball team and member of two National Championship teams, three SEC Championship teams, and three College World Series teams, he's authored two books, The Mindside Manifesto, and the game plan, and also hosts the Secrets to Winning podcast weekly. Go check that out. Brett was an incredible guest in regards to providing things that you can use every time you go play golf, as well as in your everyday life. Okay. We talk a lot about how to make the average better. He um, talked about what he does with his players Billy Horschel, Brian Harmon, Pat Xire, a lot of different guys. Um, we talk about baseball and some, some parallels between baseball and golf and life, five personalities in the heat of the moment, how to not care and, and play your game, um, to stop romanticizing perfect. There's just so many different nuggets in this episode. Um, I'm just going to stop there and make sure you guys listen to the end. Uh, usually in these conversations that go over an hour, the best stuff really comes towards the end. And feel free to reach out to us on any of our social channels or at thepartrain.com um, with any questions or show ideas. We're, we're always happy and really enjoy engaging with you guys. So thanks again for joining and uh, get excited for the PGA Championship this week. And uh, we'll see you next week. And we're back with Brett McCabe. 
Brett, thanks so much for joining. I'm excited to have you on the show. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm glad to be here. So it's, uh, you know, I'm looking at the, is that, is that Fenway right behind you? That's Bush Stadium. Bush, oh, even, okay, even better. I grew up a Cardinal fan. I'm still a Cardinal fan. I just haven't been to the new Bush Stadium. Did you? That's awesome. Yeah. Are you still in yeah. Birmingham? I'm still in Birmingham, but okay. I became a Cardinal fan in, uh, we lived there in 1981 to 83. Okay. So I was there for the 1982 World Series against the Milwaukee Brewers. Oh, awesome. uh, we had moved to Dallas when they got screwed against um, Kansas City Royals before you were born and then mm -hmm. uh, Minnesota Twins in 87. But I've always been a fan of the Cardinals. and um, I haven't been to New Bush Stadium. I, I'd like to go, but I haven't been. Yeah, I'm going to be – I'm going to fall into the stereotype of a classic Cardinals fan. I don't want to tout ourselves too much, but uh, Bush Stadium, especially the new one, is awesome, especially with the new village and everything. Obviously, right now it's tougher to go to, but um, you got to get out there. Yeah. Now, we – I love the, I love everything about St. Louis, and it's such a great baseball town for a lot of reasons. And, you know, there's – you know, the, the, the St. Louis fan um, – fan base is just so passionate and you got the Yankees who will buy their players and, and all the other stuff. The Cubs had to sell themselves out to buy a world series, but the Cardinals have always done it the right way. And, yep. um, you know, it's just awesome. Awesome fan base. Looking back as I've gotten older, I've realized, you know, I always just thought I was a, people would say you're such a crazy sports fan, but then I go home and I realize, Oh no, that's just the, my environment. Yeah. Everyone in St. Louis is because in all honesty, there's not much else to do besides, well, I, I remember going to, when I lived in Belleville, I used to go to, um, we used to go to the St. Louis Steamers game. You know who oh, yeah. they were? Yeah. Okay. Uh, and we'd always obviously go to the Blues. The Steamers were the um, indoor and the missile, the major indoor soccer league, which yeah. was an absolute blast. And I think they had a goalie by the name of Slovo Ilieski. Is that right? Um, sure. Yeah. Yeah. But I used to go and watch the suitors and, Bruce Suter and then the Sutters on the other side. I mean, it was just great. Uh, I just love St. Louis. It was such a great sports town. And if you've never been to, if people are listening to this, never been to a, a St. Louis Cardinal game, you got to do it in the heat of the summer, but you got to go. I mean, it's just fantastic. Yeah, for sure. So you were a baseball guy, right? Yep. I grew up playing baseball. That was my sport too. And uh, I didn't play it at the college level, but you won two national titles at LSU. Mm -hmm. And I was curious, I wanted to start there because as a college kid, you know, in most cases, the college kid just wants to party. And obviously, if you're a college athlete, you want to win. But it's usually tough to balance those two things. Did you notice what was happening when you guys won two national titles, like from a locker room mental standpoint? Or did you realize what was happening there years later when you started studying? No, I mean, we knew it was special. I, you know, a lot of it was because our coach was special. And, you know, it wasn't just a situation where we got lucky. I mean, he was building a program in a short amount of time and he had an entire system that he had in place. And, but our guys early were, I don't want to say ragtags, but they were very, um, you know, they, they were a bunch of guys that would do what it took to win. Hmm. They were hard nosed players. They played the game hard. You'd mix in some superstars like a Ben McDonald, an Albert Bell, guys like that. But the other guys, I mean, it was, they were program guys. they, you know, they knew how to lay out a, a ball from first to third. They knew how to get an angle on a bunt. They knew how to mm. place a hard tag. And, and, you know, the game of baseball has so many eloquent natures to it, but it's also a little bit like hockey in that, and, and I don't mean to upset people who are listening to this, but you've got to know when to put a hard tag on somebody. You've got to know when to throw inside. You've got to know when you're, 
um, are, you know, talking some trash. You got, there's an element of that. And our, our team, you know, we played really, really hard and we partied really hard. And um, I know it sounds crazy to say that on podcast, but you know, we, we had a, my coach won five titles in 10 years. Wow. And when he brought the team back and we had, it was his 80th birthday. I think he's like 81 or 82 right now. So it's about two years ago. We had a big party for a lot of former players in his era and the NCAA president, Mark Emmert was there and former coaches and a bunch of coaches across the country sent in videos and we all get together. And so we all got there and we were telling stories and, and our guys are really successful post baseball. It's, it's a trend that you see in our program. Very, very, um, very relevant. And so we're all telling these stories and, and our program was always kind of open door. I mean, you told the stories, if you were a fan, you heard them, sorry, you know, type of stuff. And we're just ripping on coach. I mean, it's a roast. It, it turned into a roast. We're just up there and we're telling funny stories. And we're talking about all this. And, and finally he gets up there. Well, the, the coach that's there now gets up and goes, you know, I, you know, I just can't imagine the love that my players had have for me is well, anywhere come close to the love that these guys have for Skip. And Skip gets up there and he, and, and he gets up and he starts talking. He goes, you know, there's not a milk drinker in our bunch. And that's kind of who we were. I mean, it wasn't uncommon for us to, you know, close down the bars, but just show up at eight o'clock in the morning for practice. And it, I think it was a culture. And I'm not saying for parents that are listening to this, ooh, that's bad or wrong and what I do. I, I think it was a, we policed ourselves. We took care of ourselves. We, we knew how to do what we needed to do when it mattered, but we had a hard edge about ourselves and coach raised us to be jerks a little bit. So we were always pushing against the status quo. It was never good enough. It was never accepting. If somebody said they're really good, who cares? Like, I don't care if it's Nomar Garcia Parra or J.D. Drew or Lance Berkman. I don't care who we're playing against. We're going to beat them. And we were – LSU baseball was really built on the concept of the preferred walk-on. And we had our superstars, but we had a bunch of preferred walk-ons because baseball gets such limited scholarships that would do anything for the game. And they do anything for the purple and gold. And some of the superstars that have come through the program, people didn't realize were preferred walk-ons, but they paid their time and their patience and they were trained by the older players. So sitting in that, in that locker room, you, it didn't matter who you were. It didn't matter what your scholarship level was. It didn't matter if you were going to be a top 10 pick in the draft, you were humbled just like anyone else. And that culture was really, really special. It wasn't about hazing. We didn't haze anybody. We didn't do anything silly like that. Um, it was about what was the expectation of excellence at every single level. And, and my coach was known to talk about when he first took the job, he would go up in the stands and eat the popcorn during games. Or he'd send an assistant coach or a GA because his answer was, if we're not excellence on the little things, how can we be great on the big things? Mm. He wanted every opposing player and team and family member to get off the bus and look at Alex Box Stadium and go, ah, crap. This is unbelievable. But we did our own field. You know, we had somebody who mowed the grass, but we built our own. You know, we didn't show up and have a field specialist that built our mound. The pitchers did that after practice. Oh, interesting. But we took pride in it. You know, we, we strung our own, um, our own screens and we painted them. Because if you can't have pride in what you built, then you're not going to fight for it at the end. And I think hmm. that was the culture that he built. But we also would do things like, you know, we, we'd go to basketball games and we'd hand out schedules. And, you know, that was when Shaq was playing. And, and so they'd have 15,000 in the PMAC, the basketball arena at LSU. And we'd be up there in the stands. We were a national championship team. And we're up there handing out, you know, things. And, and he would expose us to new environments. My sophomore year, I spoke to the national chapter of the NAAC, or the Louisiana chapter of the NAACP. He would always put us in situations to 
to broaden ourselves to understand. But when you fought for each other, it was very clear. And, you know, we fought in the, I mean, shoot, we fought in the, the, the locker room too. I mean, there was, you know, it wasn't uncommon to look over and two guys are rolling on the ground, but we'd all go to dinner, or go out that night. Long right. answer, but. No, it sounds like there's a lot of parallels in what I hear about great teams. It sounds like one theme was team over individual while another was empowerment, mm-hmm. right? It seems everyone's got different leadership styles. I found in my personal experiences leading teams that you normally, you usually perform the best when you put it on them to kind of own what they're doing, right? Yeah. But I, I'm always fascinated with the blend of that though, because you, you need guidance too, right? Well, you got to have a coach or a leader who understands the psychological fingerprint of each contributor. Hmm. And then you got to have a personal plan for each contributor. And if you don't understand the uniqueness and the specificity of each person you're working with, and you're treating them with a one size fits all approach, what's going to happen is you're going to lose three quarters of the people because yeah. they're not engaged. And it was very easy for us. You know, we didn't, we didn't, it was, we didn't spend a lot of time doing what other people did. I remember I, I spoke with my coach um, at a, at a state um, convention a couple months, a couple years ago. And, uh, they allowed me to introduce them and, and we're talking and, and he, he reaches out and he, he asks to the crowd, he goes, how many of you guys in baseball, you know, as coaches, you know, would teach your first, your guy running into first base to run best the bag and break it down and look to the right to see if an overthrow and then try to get to second base. And everybody raises their hand. He goes, you'd work on that a couple of times a week in practice. You probably did too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, I think the, an my was, coach called it a, like a hard turn, right? Yeah. Make them think you're, you're, turn, you're going to second. And my coach sat up there and goes, see, I taught my kids that one time. And then I taught them how to hit the three-run home run. That's why I won national titles. <laughs> because his point was, we're focusing on the wrong things, mm-hmm. okay? You're not going to win a game because your kid got to second base, okay? So you're spending practice time doing that. Look at what matters. And the matters was getting the kid to believe that when you stepped into the batter's box, you could hit a home run to win it. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the very famous – situation if you follow anything about college baseball was a kid by the name of warren morris who hit the home run in the bottom of the ninth inning to beat miami with two outs um to win the national title okay it's it's one of the three or four ever in baseball history well warren was a teammate of mine for three years and going into that year he was going to be on team usa playing in the olympics which he did but he broke the hamate bone in his hand and after the first 20 games of the season he ended up having surgery because he couldn't hold the bat and he was a walk-on that played behind my old roommate, a kid by the name of Todd Walker, who played in the major leagues for 13 years and was, is in the College Baseball Hall of Fame and is the greatest second baseman to ever play in college baseball. So Warren just learned everything about the game from him. He was a walk-on. He was a zoology major, a 3.8 student, great kid. If you met him on the quad, you would think he was on his way to computer class. But he did everything he could. And then what Coach realized, and that was the first year I was done playing, and what Coach realized is that when he was in the lineup, they were 21-0. So when they go to the postseason, he tells them, you can't even swing a bat yet, but I need you on the field. He was a captain, and I need you on the field. So he would come up and bunt. And then they got to the World Series, he could start swinging. Well, he comes up in the bottom of the ninth inning with two outs and a runner on third. You know, he's got to get the run in. And he hits a home run to win it on the first pitch. And his answer was, I wanted to train players to believe that when the moment arises, they believe they are the catalyst to make it happen. 
And I think it's formed everything about the way I coach, it's formed everything about the way that I've become a psychologist because it's that individuality. Most people would look at a Warren Morris or they look at a Brett McCabe and go, yeah, see, they're not major league kids. Well, Warren played four years in the major leagues. Okay. But they would look at him and they write him off because they don't fit the recruiting and they don't fit the standard. Yeah. And what Skip saw was what was inside of us. And he saw that, that, that I was willing to do the uncommon thing. And I was willing to do the hard thing to succeed. And that's what that psychological fingerprint is all about. If you can tap into that and you can light that up for a kid, oh God, you can win. I love that. So obviously most of the listeners in this podcast are golf fanatics, um, but we always like to use golf as a, you know, a a thread to then learn lessons for your life. Um, And this question is more about sports in general. We'll get to golf. Um, But I was curious, have you found that the use of sports stories and sports lessons disarms people to want to better themselves that might not have been receptive to change otherwise? Well, I mean, sports are the fabric. It's, it's our escapism fabric. I mean, just see yeah. what's happening during COVID without having sports. We're stuck to watch old classics, right? right? And we'll do it just to pull that essence back. But you know, a lot of the vernacular that we use, I mean, it's the bottom of the ninth inning, guys. Come on, we got to get this sales presentation done. Or, you know, it's as easy as a pot fly and apple pie. I mean, come on, it's a can of corn, you know. Um, you know, it's, 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 you know, it's fourth down now. Let's go. It's a, we're in overtime. I think it just treats the vernacular of what we do because we can all relate to it. And even if we're not a sports fan, we understand it. Right. I think what we have to realize is when we pull on those stories, it disarms us because of our individual relationship with the sport. I mean, you could sit there and tell me something about the cricket or the pitch in soccer, and I can probably kind of figure it out. But if you speak to me from a baseball standpoint, it really, really resonates to me because of my relationship with my dad and, and playing baseball growing up. Um, and so I think it helps people. I, I've worked in organizations where the manager was a hardcore sports fan and the, some of the people would say, look, you got to give us some different analogies. So I had to work with them to say, look, let's use some movie analogies, right? Like, you know, we're going up against Darth Vader right now or, um, you know, something like that. But for the most part, particularly like in the Southeast, you bring up anything relevant to college football. Um, it really, really speaks to people. Sure. Yeah. Colin Marikawa's coach. Uh, I just saw a video the other day, of their a practice session they did and he yeah. talked about how when they work together they don't use the words good shot bad shot um, the only thing that matters is it, what they learned mm-hmm. from from that shot how important is that in your mind in regards to not seeing things as good or bad but simply the goal the one goal being to learn well we we it's, it's wonderful. Um, I think what we have to understand is that life is not a dichotomy. It's not good or bad. Um, we really live in the gray area and I try to get my players to understand that their average needs to improve, not their best. Mm. What happens is when, when play, there's seven outcomes to a round of golf, in my opinion, there's really freaking terrible. There's pretty bad or not good. Okay. I mean, there's pretty bad, not good, average, good, better, awesome. Okay. What happens is if it's pretty freaking terrible and you're in the fifth hole, like I had this past Saturday, the initial mindset is to automatically flip it and try to make it awesome. Can't happen. Mm. Okay. It just can't happen. And so what happens is most of us discount everything in our game shy of awesome. Because if we're shooting our average, God, that's just not good enough. Right. But it's our average. 
it's, it's what's occurring the vast majority of the times if it's a standard normal distribution. Yep. And so what happens is you have to get people to realize that their average is good enough. And that's one of the reasons why I've had success with a lot of my players is I've actually thought about it like a baseball pitcher. It's good enough. I spin a slider up there. The guy swings through it. I don't sit there and yell at myself behind the mound and go, God, if I could just throw. And at the same time, you throw an awesome pitch. The dude hits it out. You go, what else can I do? And so you have to, you know, you don't see a pitcher in Major League Baseball raise their hand on the mound and say, I'm, I'm out. I can't do this. But golfers are raised that perfectionism is ideal. And they're raised that way because it works. That keeps you out there doing a mindless practice. But it's also the fact when it's good, it's so good. And when it's off, it feels so – it's like having a hair in your mouth, right? That's what it feels like if it's not right. right. And like you know you could have done better, but why didn't I do better? Because it was in my control. What I want them to realize is that awesome is such a rare occurrence. So when we're striving for perfection or striving for the flow, or stri- you ain't going to get it. Let's make our average better make it good enough. Okay? Yeah. So when we hit a shot, it's good enough. Like I can dissect it 16 ways to Sunday. But in the heat of the moment, it's good enough. Let's go find the next one. Um, and, and to what I'm sure it was Rick um, is, it was talking about with Colin is, is getting that mindset of like, what did we learn from it? What I want us to experience is it's experienced. The intention was high. The acceptance was high. We go to the next one. And if you can understand that value that happens, we don't bring the judgment with it. The judgment is what crushes us. So we hit a shot. It's like, oh, I got a bad break. Or, oh, I contributed to Or oh, Why am I screwing up? It's like, you're screwing up. I mean, sometimes just admitting you suck today. Like that is okay. It it, it happens to everybody. Once you get them to realize that what happens is it kind of de-escalates, reduces that tension. And then it's like, okay, I'm going to win ugly today or I'm gonna get the ball in the hole ugly. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, I I think people forget that PGA tour players win 80% of their money in five events a year. They're not good 80% of the time. They may be, but their average, the ones that are really good, their average is better. And one of my guys um, who's, you know, had a lot of success through the FedEx and, and different settings like that. You know, one of the things we've done is said, look, if we could steal 20 or 30 points here and there, let's do it. And then when you strike, now you're at a higher platform and you got to manage that, you know, 25th when you really didn't have it. But the old way, the 25th may have been a 57th or may have been a miscut. So, while you have to deal with the murkiness of not ideal golf, you got to keep going. That's an interesting point because we talked about this in our last mental game episode where we realized, you know, there's, a, there's the cliche of you hit it great on the range, you hit it like shit on the course, right? Mm-hmm. But what I found was usually the first six holes, you're so frustrated because you're looking for that perfect shot you hit on the range. It's like this dragon that you can't kill and you're, you're, you're just looking to slay the dragon of the perfect shot and you can't get it, right? But I found recently, I saw a great shift for me personally where I realized that I'm making too many changes in my swing. I'm not gonna hit it perfect right now. So what I did was I put it in back of my stance mm-hmm. and I just started hitting little punch shots. Mm-hmm. And I knew that my misses are pretty minimal. My distance control is pretty, pretty solid. I'm gonna be somewhere around the green. So worst case, I'm not going to get up and down. I'm going to make a bogey. But I wasn't having the 50-yard blocks anymore. I wasn't trying to do too much because I knew I'm working on things right now. I'm just going to work with what I got. It's bigger than that. So when I was pitching, we used to talk about the starting home team pitcher, who's the guy who starts the game. Right? Yeah. And 
we, our coach has some statistics. I don't know. You may have made them up, but um, that 70% of the first inning, the guy gives up two runs and we called it the inevitable two. Hmm. And the reason for that was they come out of the bullpen. There's no rhythm and flow of the game yet. They don't have a command of their pitches. They're facing the best part of the other team's lineup. They're amped up. The strike zone's not very good. So they give up two runs. And by the time they get to the sixth or seventh hitter, they can get them out. And they usually settle down. But why give that up? So what we had to do is we had strategies for how to deal with it. You mm-hmm. simplify your pitch count. You simplify your, your zoning. We got to get infielders to get on their toes, make a play. Um, we got to get ready for the chaos. Well, golfers do the opposite. See, every other sport prepares for the chaos of competition golfers romanticize the calm of competition and it screws them completely right out of the gate. Like, Oh my God, I cannot believe it's like this. Well, are you that naive to think that the range or playing with your buddies is the same arousal as playing in something that matters? Like, Oh, I don't feel nervous. Okay. You don't feel it, but it, it is, it's hyper arousal. This past weekend we had our match play championship and I have a group of 20 I play with every week and it's heated three days a week and it's, it, it gets after it and a lot of trash talk and a lot of fun, yep. but we get in the match play and I'm in the match play tournament. Two guys in my group are part of my group and they're my dear friends and I'm playing this other guy and I come out of the gate first two holes playing phenomenal. Like I'm talking buttoning it. Right. Yep. And I'm like, okay, I'm going into the third hole where I got to give up a shot. It, it is what it is. And in my mind, I wanted to be two up going into that hole because the guy that I was playing wasn't a, I mean, he was a low handicap. So I knew he wasn't gonna make a lot of mistakes, but I didn't want to force birdie on the hardest hole in the golf course. Well, what happened was I hit a drive so good on the second hole, which is a par five that went over a hill. And one of my playing partners had chipped out that one of the guys drove up and said, this is Brett's ball. Yours is down there. Well, I get up and I hit a perfect shot up, you know, just off the green. I'm going to chip up, make birdie, go up two up. And I realized I hit the wrong ball. My drive had gone 35 yards further than the ball that we thought. Okay. And in my mind, I'm sitting there and I'm like, okay, you're the psychologist you've worked with. I mean, I think we've had, I don't know how many victories, number one golf in the world, you know, all these other guys I get to work with, right? Be better than that. Don't let this bother you. I lost five of my next eight holes. Okay. I shot 45 on the front nine. I'm a one handicap. Like that Mm -hmm. shouldn't happen. Yeah. Okay. I was so I was so trying so hard to not make it bother me that it bothered me. Mm-hmm. The next morning, we all get eliminated. The next morning, we all go out and play in our group. I shot even par, and it was as like simple as possible. And the group I was with, they were like, we couldn't understand why you kept clubbing down. Like you were trying to play so smart that you played bad. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know what? It's the same thing I teach my players. Like, you know, there are players that I watch on the PGA Tour you know, who hit it a long way that they start trying to flight shots under pressure. Don't, they're big, high-speed guys. Learn to hit it harder. Oh, I know every instructor out there is going to tell me, what am I thinking? Okay? But it's like a pitcher. Like, when I get under pressure, I would throw a slider harder than I would a fastball because it forced me to stay in the pitch. You got to know your tendencies. And so when, yeah. the, when the moment changes, you got to learn in versus judging. So for you to go out there and say, look, I'm going to play it rather conservative. I'm going to manage my game until I get in the rhythm. I think it's a brilliant idea. I've never understood why players and junior players do this all the time. They don't have a fairway finder off the tee. Yeah. I think 95% of our golfers should have a a tee ball that they can get in play. I don't want to hear, well, man, I can just hit it so far. I don't care. Yeah. Like the the mini tours are filled with players that can hit it 340 off the tee who can't 
get it in play 14 times off of a tee ball in competition. Yep. I know you can at me, you can come at me and tell me, Oh, it's not true. You should see this kid. Great. There's a reason why players are still out on tour and you know, the great players on tour do the little things better than everybody else. There are guys that hit it so much further than the, that are on tour. There's pitchers that throw it so much harder than we see in the major leagues. They have no command. They have no ability to flight shots. They have terrible wedges and they can't get a ball in off the tee when they need to. You've got to get a ball in the short grass off the tee. Yeah. And I found personally when I, cause I, I'm on a Ryder cup trip every, every year. We couldn't do it this year, but um, I've noticed that I play better when I'm under pressure. And I think that's because to your point about the slider, I found that I get so hyper-focused on the one thing I need to do, whether that's maintain my posture, whether that's good tempo. And I end up performing. Whereas other times, you know, some people, the opposite happens. And so it's, I think the tendency point is so critical because well, people to, complain yeah. Well, but you they never actually reflect, right? No, they don't reflect. And, and to me, there's five personalities in the heat of the moment, okay? Yeah. The first personality is the amp up guy or girl. When I say guy, I mean both yep. sides. Um, the amp up person. And they have to amp themselves up. And so if I talk to a planner and say, you know, when you play your best, what do you, oh, I'm talking so much trash and I just want to beat somebody in the ground. It's like, well, why don't, why don't we do that when we play? Well, because somebody told me I had to be calm. I'm like, that somebody has screwed up more game of PGA tour players and anybody I know mm -hmm. you got to be able to hit it both ways. You got to be able to hit this. You got to be go be you. Yeah. Chick-fil-A only sells chicken. I would own a Chick-fil-A franchise if I could. Okay. <laughs> I don't think they're worried at night that they can't sell a cheeseburger. Okay. Yeah. The second one is the tactician. Think about like a Mariano Rivera and we, we, he'd come out to enter Sandman, but he was really methodical. Every pitch had his one little purpose to it. He just stayed with that, and it didn't matter if it was game seven or it was game one. It didn't matter. Mm -hmm. He did his same approach, and there are golfers like that. The third one is what I call a bubble guy, and there's sometimes some confusion with this, but the bubble guy is what they do is they just say, it's my interaction with the game. Okay, I don't have to be anything. I don't have to do anything. It's me playing the golf course. It's me playing what I'm doing. If I need to amp up sometimes, one of my guys on the PGA Tour, Billy Horschel, is like that. Um, most people would think he's an amp up guy. He's not, he can play very methodical. He can play very point to point, but he, he has to get into his relationship with where he is in the game in the moment. The fourth one is the worrier. That's the person who worries about every bad thing that could possibly happen. Yep. Pukes all over everyone else's shoes and then feels good and ready to go. Okay. Mm -hmm. The fifth one is kind of what the, what I call the chosen one, which is kind of the web Simpson Simpson, which is the, Hey, let go, let God. Okay. I can't control any of the outcomes. It's up to a better force. Me, and it works for them. You got to know who you are and you got to know when you play your best. And I had a player I've worked with for a long time, came by the name of Hudson Swafford. Oh, yeah. And when he won in Palm Springs, we had gone into the year before we had started studying why he wasn't winning because the dude would be moving up leaderboards and fall down leader and then fall down. Kid's talent. I mean, he, he should have been playing baseball. I mean, he's a big six foot yeah. five kid. And, um, so anyway, we figured out that when he would get on a run and go five, six, seven under, he'd start trying to hit flighted shots. He'd start trying to, because that's mm. what his mind was. Good players are going to do that. Right. What we realized, I mean, he's a high speed, high adrenaline kid. Okay. He's going to smash it. And what we realized is instead of going up a club and choking down, let's go down a club and rip it. Mm. And he, he beat another one of my clients, Brian Harmon at Palm Springs, Harmon's answer was, if I had two more holes, I would have caught him. 
Hudson's thing was not the way I was hitting it. I was flushing everything. So you've got to look at what makes you tick. You don't be, I don't care if Jack did it one way or, t- I mean, Tiger is the most emotional player we've ever seen that was, that could channel it. Yeah. He knew how to fire himself up. So why do you have to be calm? Right. Like if you need to talk trash in your head to your opponent, talk trash. Right. Like, I mean, it's like Jordan not, in the last dance. He created stories that he created he needed, stories, right? Yeah. hundred percent, hundred percent. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I think you have to understand who you are and, and too many people are trying to be calm and relaxed and, you know, reading books of the spiritual awakening of golf. Golf's an athletic sport. And you have to find the way you do it. If you want to be a methodical player, be a methodical player. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, and you're going to do your, and, and it's going to work for you, but you, you got to make sure that's you. And I think as coaches, we have to help them understand who they are. And, and that takes reflection. You know, stress under the heat of the moment impacts us in four major areas. It impacts our physical game, our mental game, our decision-making and our resiliency. And if you're not using the stress every time you're in it, whenever our heart rate gets up, whenever we feel tight, whenever we get nervous, if we're not understanding that, we don't have a chance. Yeah. It reminds me of this example of, you know, a lot of people talk about fear of hitting the bad shot. That's a whole area we could talk about. But actually, your example with Hudson might actually be more extreme, which is fear and trying to maintain success. It's almost mm-hmm. the fear of, of greatness in a way, right? It's, that, yeah. it's, it's the question of what actually creates more pressure. Is it the fear of hitting in the hazard? Or is it that tension you feel after you birdied two in a row? And I'm not talking about the pros. I'm talking more so you know, the it, amateur it, golfer. What well, is that? Both, what do you think drives that tension after two birdies in a row? Well, I, I would say that they're the same thing. They're coming from the same source, okay? okay? So anytime we're in an, un, in an uncertain environment where consequence can be building in us, our mind is going to do its job. And this yeah. job is to work like a radar system and identify threat, internal and external threats. Yeah. Your mind isn't going to go, God, I feel so good about myself. Where's the next opportunity to dominate? Because you'd walk out in a, in a field and a bear would eat you. So when you're, when you're uncertain, which all competition is, your brain is going to send out negative thoughts, okay? Mm-hmm. When it, and, and it's going to send out so many thoughts and so many analyses of consciousness that you're not even going to realize it. But the ones that bubble up to the higher level of consciousness have grabbed your emotional and your attention, your amygdala and different facets of your brain. Mm-hmm. It's going to go, oh, got it. And now, it go, now you start directing attention to it. Well, that just told the brain, we got an issue here. Okay. Now it's happening like at lightning speed. Oh, we got an issue. So it starts flooding more and more. So when you go, don't hit it in the water. Oh crap. If I hit it in the water, people are going to think I'm, I mean, I just blew this lead or yeah. God, I birdied two in a row. If I, if I, you know, if I do this, if I do that, it's like, Whoa, I mean, everybody gets those thoughts. Everybody gets those thoughts. Mm-hmm. If they're telling you they're not, they're lying to you. Um, that's why I hate it when I hear people say, you know, and I've heard it around the mental game forever. And it's a major pet peeve of mine that the mind doesn't know what the word don't means. Right. So all it hears is hit it in the water. Oh yeah. Total garbage bullshit. <laughs> okay. Total made up crap. Yeah. Okay. And this is why I hate my field. Sometimes there's no verification or validation of what is actually true and not. Mm-hmm. The fact is when you say don't, you just told your brain that's a major issue. So now it hears and it sees and it evaluates. If I told you not to think of a white elephant, you don't think of a white elephant. What you're thinking is suppression. Okay. Right. And suppressed. Don't think of a white elephant. Don't. Okay. 
it's not the fact that you heard think of white elephant. You're thinking, why should I think of a white elephant? Don't think of a white elephant because he's, I'm, I, you know, and it mm-hmm. takes your attention. Okay. So a lot of times what I'll do when I'm working with a player is I'm like, God, you know, oh, we're yawn in front of you. And, and then they're like, don't yawn. And now they spend more time trying not to yawn and suppression versus just going, yawn, get it over with, let's go. Okay. So when you're in the heat of the moment and the mind pops in and goes, ah, oh, crap. That's why in tournaments, we tend to have greater consequence because you got to post your number. Like if you're playing with your boys and you have a bad day, all it's going to cost you is some ribbing. Yeah. But for some reason, we think about putting it on a leaderboard is so much worse. Who cares? Yeah. So, you know, you got to be willing to be out there and be that vulnerable. So if you have that negative thought, like, God, don't don't three putt this. Take a step back and say, well, no shit, I don't want to three putt. Mm -hmm. What do I want to do? In other words, acknowledge it. Don't judge it. Like, eh, no kidding, I don't want to three-putt this. Yep. Okay, but what we normally do is we're so uncomfortable that we rush to get out of it, and then we bypass it and quickly abandon it. Yeah, one time I, I learned, it was, it was a mini breakthrough for me because I learned that, you know, I was coming down the stretch. It was just a for-fun round, but I was on track to shoot my best score ever, right? Mm-hmm. And I took a step back and I realized, okay, why am I, what, what's going to happen if I shoot my best score ever? I'm going to call my friends. I'm going to text some of them. I'm going to tell them. They're going to say, that's awesome. We might talk through, you know, what happened in a few shots. I realized that's really it. Besides the personal accomplishment, of course, I want to shoot my best round ever. I want to get better. But if I shoot, you know, I'm a single digit handicap. If I shoot a 75, 76, I'm probably going to text my buddy that I had a good round anyways. And so I, I released my attachment to this big thing that I was creating, which was 100%. my best score ever. Right. Yep. And that kind of freed me up and I ended up doing it anyways. Well, you know, what's so funny is I love that. And when COVID started, we had the pins that were pulled out of the cup yeah. and I shot a super low number and, it, and I didn't even keep score that day. Cause we were kind of like, it really doesn't matter, you know, whatever. And I looked at it and I was like, man, I hit like every green. Okay. <laughs> like it had nothing to do with the pins. It was just the fact that I was like, it didn't care. Right. But you know, when, I, when I'm working with juniors, one of the things I tell them is, and I tell the parents this, is if you have a bad round at a tournament, you can't get in your car, call me your swing coach, schedule an immediate appointment. If you shoot a bad round, go sit in the locker room, go sit in the, the grill, order a sandwich, and realize that nobody else gives a shit. Yeah. Right? Yeah. No, and I tell them, you got to sit in it a little bit. And I'm not saying that for punishment. I'm not doing that like shame, shame, mm-hmm. shame. I'm not yeah. asking them to be Cersei walking down the, the streets of Westeros. What I am asking them to do is to sit there and just understand that no one cares. Mm-hmm. Like no one cares that you had a bad round. So what I teach my juniors to do is only say, man, what happened to you? you? had a bad round. You know, I just had a bad day, but God, man, you played great. Most people are like, oh, thank you. They're not going to remember you shot a bad round. They're going to remember that you told them how great they are. Yeah. And you become awesome. But yeah. if you're the fair weather succeeder, that you're only in a good mood when you play good, you're only, you're always in a bad mood when you don't, nobody wants to play with you anyways. Yeah. And the game is going to punish you because the game, you know, we think that play, you know, every PGA tour player hits it to two feet from a hundred yards. Well, the PGA average is like 19 feet. Okay. So, yeah. you know, you got to look at it as there's, there's a lot of un, unexpected perfectionism that we place and our ego means something to us. Like I want to be able to come in and say, oh, I played really, I played really good. Okay. Like, 
Okay. I was playing with a couple of my players um, right before COVID went back in and I'd gone down to Sea Island and I was playing with Harmon and Kazire and then Ben Coles, who's not one of my guys. Mm-hmm. And they were like, come on, get your clubs. I'm like, all right, I'll play with you because we had our member guests coming up. Mm-hmm. And I played with Pat in a couple of times. And I get up on the first hole and I'm nervous because Harmon, I've worked with him for five years and dude will tear you apart with his tongue faster than any human being. And he's good really? at it. Okay. Oh yeah. I wouldn't have he's expected good that it. about Brian Harmon. Oh, he's awesome. Okay. And I'm saying this out of affection. Like we go yeah, yeah. at each other all the time. Yeah. It doesn't matter what it is. He'll be, I'll walk up and be like, Hey, nice. You know, nice. Like the only reason I grew a beard is because before Christmas he said two years ago, he said, I doubt you can grow a beard. I showed up in LA. He's like, Holy shit. Nice beard. Okay. <laughs> it, it started the whole process. Right. And sure. it's just who we are. We just like to rip on each other. Mm-hmm. And I get up on the first hole and I'm nervous and I'm like, I can feel it. And I'm like, screw it. They don't care. I get up and I just pipe this drive and I outdrive them by like 20 yards because I got so much adrenaline. They got none because they don't care. Right. And then I hit the approach shot to like an inch and Brian's like, okay, wait a minute. Now I'm giving four shots aside and you're doing this next hole. I duck hook in the water. And he looks at me and goes, that's why they call you doc. <laughs> no one cares. Right. right. I was so nervous and stressed. It didn't care. You think it changes one thing? No. Yeah. I mean, I'm a good player, but if I, you know, when people used to come to the batting cage or throw with us, I wouldn't go, holy cow, this kid is just awful. Nobody cares. And right. we think the world cares about us. I, I would rather us to go out there and say, you know what? I play because today's a challenge, but I don't know what today's going to be. We think we have to go out and be our best every day. How about we go find the best that's available to us that day? Mm-hmm. Because your best is a once in a lifetime experience. So Do you really want to... You Tiger want to blow that about today? That. Yeah. I mean, Tiger used to talk about how he show up and some days he's hitting cuts out of a hook stance. Yes. And he's like, all right, I guess that's what I'm going to go with today. Yep. Instead of spending the entire round trying to hit a draw when that's just not working. It's not working. And most players look at So when first time I was ever on tour, I was sitting in the, um, I was hanging out at the house of my player it was a PGA championship at the Atlanta athletic club mm-hmm. way fish out of water sitting with a couple of European rider cuppers. I mean, so much out of my fish out of water. I was like embarrassed, but one of them was Ian Poulter and I've always liked Ian ever since that night. And, and Ian was extremely gracious to me. He knew I was a fish out of water. Um, he brought me over a putter and a, in a pla in a plastic wrap. And he said, hold this. And it was, uh, Seve Ballesteros was 1984 putter from the British open. Wow. He had purchased at an auction. Real quick story about Ian. So people don't, you know, people are like, oh my God, he's an ass. Yeah. Ian buys a ton of stuff on charities, puts them up in his house and takes things off his wall and donates them to charity. He raises a significant amount of money for charities. He's actually a wonderful guy. He's an unbelievable family man. Anyway, so we're talking. I said, Ian, what is it about Europeans at the time we're winning everything? He said, American kids are so chasing that perfect day that the day they don't have it, they tank it and they just start looking for it. Hmm. European players, we've never had it. Okay. We've always played in uh, unpredictable services. So we just go out there and find our best every day. Tiger had that. Okay. Yeah. As a pitcher, you have that. I mean, I can't sit there and say, oh my God, my two seam fastball is not working. I'm going to keep pitching with my two seam fastball because I'm not going to be on the mound long. You figure out how to get people out. And in golf, I don't care if you're having to hit it then. If you're having to hit it then, play it. Like yeah. it sucks. It hurts. You know, if you have to tee it down that day, doesn't mean it's a less than. The answer is, what did you score on this hole? How did you get the ball in the hole? That's all that matters. Mm-hmm. And there are sometimes I'm not telling you to search for a solution every day. What I'm saying is, when you got something that's just just keep 
producing it. It's okay. It's good enough. I feel like a lot of people and a lot of the mental game is obviously your relationship with yourself. But I feel like one area that's not talked about a lot is something you mentioned a a few minutes ago, which is your perception of others and how much you care about what the other's thinking, what the other's doing. I mean, how important has that been for you you and your players to just, you know, they the cliche is play within yourself, but a lot of it is not caring what other people think. Yeah, but we can never not care what other people think. Anybody tells you that they're full of shit. Okay. It's, it's biological for us. And if you want to know more why that is read the book uh, by Robert Wright called why Buddhism is Buddhism is true. Robert has a evolutionary psychology background or interest as a journalist Mm -hmm. and does a lot of writing. And he, he talks about why that's so important is that social status is critically important for genetic, um, you know, you know, procreation. Okay. So from a very tribal sense and across all the animal cultures, you know, the lions mate with the healthiest women to produce the best offspring. Okay. It's innate to us. So we care what other people think. Nobody wants to say, I want to be a bottom feeder. I want to be the, the worst, ugliest person in the world. Okay. We say we want to move up status. And so when we're looking at other people, we are conditioned to see our weaknesses as other people's strengths. Hmm. That's just what we are. And so you have to understand it. So instead of getting mad when we go, my God, Cameron Champ hits it a long way. Okay. Well, you have to look at them and go, that's really cool. He hits it a long way. It's just a different game than mine. Okay. Yep. That's the beauty of the game. You don't have to be seven foot tall to be dominating. You don't have to be um, you know, Brian LeBron Harman. James. Yeah. You can be Brian Harmon and, and, and come in second and almost win the longest U.S. Open in history at Aaron Hills. Yep. Right. And, you know, people have to understand that there's a lot of different ways to get to the top. And you have to be more comfortable with who you are. It doesn't mean you can't go get yardage. It doesn't mean you can't get better in this. What I mean is you can't focus on what other people think because in all honesty, they really don't care. And second, you can't control what they think. You can do everything right. I mean, every one of us has somebody that we've never understood why they don't like us. They just don't like us. Okay. (laughs) We rub them the wrong way. We get around with them. We're like, I don't like them, you know? They may have, you may smell like their biology teacher in fourth grade and they're embarrassed, right? Who knows what it is? You just triggered some reason they don't like you. Um, and so I think it's important is that when we realize, you know, hope people on the first tee don't think I'm going to hit it bad. It's kind of a step back and it's like, they're probably wishing it wasn't them having to hit the shot right now. Yeah. You know, like just take a step back and realize that. Yep. What do you say to people that hear about this type of work, Right. The, the power of your mindset, the power of the mind um, in athletics and in life. And they immediately put up their barrier and think, it's just positive thinking. You're telling me to believe something that isn't my reality. Yeah. Um, what do you say to that? That's cool. There's some great negative people who've succeeded, okay, mm-hmm. um, who, who use that negativity to fire themselves up. Um, and, you know, it's it's – what I always try to tell them is, you know, it's not for everybody and it doesn't need to be for everybody. That's why I don't have a program. I don't have a system I take people through. I mean, I've got a system that I have extrapolated and put out on like a video system, but my system is the person. And so, hmm. you know, I'll have people who call and, and, you know, they'll call me and they'll say, okay, what is this all about? And, and you can tell they're not going to, you know, I'm like, Hey, do you want to, you want to formalize this? Eh, I think I'm okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's not their right time. You know, I had a player, very high profile player call me and, you know, about two days later, text me back. Yeah, I'm not up for this. I said, you know what, dude? I said, I get it. 
I get it. You call me if you ever need me. But he's the guy now when I go to tournaments, he's like, hey, you want to get together for some coffee or something? Absolutely. Okay. And it's just, I'll share an article with them. I'll share some, it's just having a resource. Not everybody wants to dive all in and others want to dive all in. They want to read every book you can. That's cool. Yeah. You know, I think, I think as a practitioner, as a psychologist, as a clinician, first and foremost, okay. Um, resistance is the, one of the number one things that I have to deal with as a clinical psychologist every day. Yeah. People don't always want to change. People change because they have to, or they need to. Um, and very rarely do they want to. Okay. Most of the time, the motivation for what you want to change wanes very quickly. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you have to deal with people's resistance and understand why they're resisting and why they're putting up the barriers versus responding to the barriers as, as if it's an attack on me. My answer is if you don't want to work with me, that's cool. I'll give you some names of some other great people. And you know what? There's a couple cases of that would be true. I mean, Brendan Todd working with Ward Jarvis, brilliant. It's a huge, awesome connection. Yeah. I spent a day with Brendan. We had a great connection. He met Ward. Is that an indictment? No, my God, that's wonderful. I'll have players that'll call me and say, Hey, you know, I know you talked about this, but I picked up this book and this is, I want to talk to them like rocket on. Yeah. Like, why is this a one person relationship? Oh. Like if I can help you gain wisdom and you come into my life and I come into yours for a period of time and I help you enrich your life and you enrich mine, I learn something about me. You learn something about you. And then we transition. Brilliant. I just want to know that if you ever need something, you can call me. And I may be able to direct you to the right person, but you had a positive enough relationship that it got you to inspire yourself to look deeper within yourself. That's all I asked for. So let's talk about that. When you start, yeah. you get a new tour pro, right? How do you start with someone? You're all about the individual and the individual approach. How do you unpack them? Start as a slowly. Person? Most people are coming in with an issue at hand, right? Yeah. And they're going to give you that little opening. It's like, this is what I want to work on. So if I go to the deeper part, I lost them. And I've learned that clinically. I mean, I've learned that if you go to the place people don't want you to go, they ain't coming back. So you solve that problem and the presenting complaint type of thing. Hmm. Then you, in that process, you learn more about them. Then you start developing skills around it to build more into better wisdom. But if they just want to come to me and they just say, look, I'm having an issue with some fear of short putts. Cool. Let's work on that. But I'll just ask questions. A lot of times when I go out on tour, um, you know, when I'm walking on the fairway with them, we're talking BS, we're talking college football, we're talking movies, shows, music, and then I'll weave in, drop a couple things, ask a couple questions. They'll usually pull me off to the side while their team is walking with them. My thing is when they're out there on the golf course, that's not really the time to do any kind of work. Yeah. I'm just building that relationship with them that they feel comfortable and I'm de I'm putting down the barriers because I don't want them to think of me as the shrink. I usually just go by Brett. I don't want anyone to call me doc. I don't, care about that. I want them and I want them to feel comfortable with me and I want their team to feel comfortable. And a lot of times I'm talking to their coach. So I may be out there with a the swing coach like, Hey, look, you may want to have them, you know, verbalize their shot a little bit right here. That way it empowers that relationship and mm -hmm. gives that coach more tools. And then we go to dinner, you know, and I'll sit with the player and we may have a glass of wine and we'll talk. And sometimes they got their guard up and sometimes they're willing to talk. And sometimes my job is to not push that. They're going to tell me what they want me to know. And so when a new player comes to me, they're just giving me the, the test balloon. And I know that. And I've never had a player who's at the top of the world go, I'm all yours. That would be scary. I mean, my God, that'd be scary. They come to you because they have an issue and then they build up trust. And a lot of times what happens is the value decreases over time because we solve that problem. 
and I'll call and say, Hey, how you doing? I mean, it's Tuesday night, you know, we're recording this. And so, you know, I may reach out to my players that are playing in the different events and say, Hey, what's going on? Oh, things are great. Awesome. Then I'll get a call from a caddy and be like, yo, did you hear about this? I'm like, no, but that's okay because they're embarrassed by it or they're frustrated. They don't want to talk. And then I'll hear on Monday, Hey, you know, I was, I was really struggling with this. The caddies or the coach are like, get on it now. It's like, that's not the time. Yeah. Like they'll bring it to me when they're ready. And then I'll drop things. If I hear things, I'll drop something. I use a lot of videos. I use a lot of books. Um, I don't expect my players to be voracious readers. Some are, some aren't. I'm not a major reader. I, I'm more of a summary reader. Mm-hmm. Like I'll pick up a book and I'll peruse it 20,000 foot level. Um, but I'll give them things to read. But I love using like East, you know, ESPN 360 or ESPN 60 videos, TED Talks, stuff like that. And I'll be like, hey, that's a concept that may interest you. Take a read of that. Yep. And, you know, those, oh, that triggered something in me or, you know, something like that. And that's kind of how I take it. I don't want to overwhelm them at first. Um, and, you know, I just want to kind of build that relationship so that they feel trusted and safe enough to, to share some ideas. Love that. All right. Two more questions. Then we'll get you out of here. Um, yeah. I was curious. I know people love stories, right? Um, you've worked with a lot of athletes over the years and we've talked about tour pros for, for golf specifically. Do you have a fun example of something you're comfortable sharing? Um, you don't need to say a player's name if you don't want to in regards to a mini breakthrough. I think everybody oh, yeah. gets to the, loves these breakthrough moments and hopefully they could take something from it themselves. Well, I'll share with this one cause he shared it publicly. Um, sure. so I started working with Billy Horschel just over two years ago and mm-hmm. Billy was at a spot in his career where he had won the FedEx cup and was having a little bit of struggles and, just tremendous player. I've talked about him already. Um, tremendous guy, great guy to be a part of a team with extremely loyal to his team. Just a great honor every day to work with them and his team, Todd Anderson and, and the crew. Um, but he was in the tour championship and he was in Atlanta and that year he had had a good year. He had won in the partner event in um, new Orleans. He had had a couple top fives right after we started working together. And then, you know, he had a little struggles. He didn't get in the U S open PGA was okay. And we go to some, wherever the first playoff event was, and he comes in third. And then he goes to the next event, and he gets strep throat and has to withdraw. Hmm. And then he goes to the next event and top third, and top comes in third again. So now going into Atlanta, he's not in a bad spot to win the FedEx Cup again. He's actually in striking distance. Okay, mm-hmm. and I think it was the year it was the year that Tiger won the Tour Championship, but Justin Rose won the FedEx oh, Cup. Yeah. Yeah, 2018. Yeah, so Billy goes out there on Thursday and Friday, and if you've never been to East Lake and watched the tournament, it's a it can be a punishing golf course if you're offline. Um, the rough is high, it's long, it's up and down the hill. The lake is at the low point, and it's really hot. Okay, <laughs> and I want to say it was the Saturday round. He texted me afterwards, and he was just okay, three under, two under, even type of stuff. And he was sitting at like even par, maybe one over going into the 14th hole. And I, I may get it, I may get it wrong a little bit, but he said afterwards, he said, he just looked at his caddy at the time, Josh, and now caddies for Daniel Berger. And he said, dude, I ain't got nothing today. Like I am fighting this. This is what doc talks about. Let's just, let's just take what we got. Let's get it in the house. Okay. And let's see what tomorrow holds. And Josh was like, dude, I love that. Well, the thing was he had to chip out to hundred yards. So now he's hitting his third shot in on this very challenging par four. 
And when he did that, it just kind of freed him up, stuffed it to about three feet, makes the putt, goes on to shoot two or three under that day. And he says, it was the best under round golf round of golf I ever played. And I want to say he shot eight under on Saturday, on Sunday to come in second. Wow. And he tells that story. And we, I went down to his AJGA tournament in the fall and we did a clinic with him, me and Todd Anderson. And he told that story and it, it, it touched me because one of the things that he always says about me is he goes, I don't know what we work on, but I know I don't think a lot when we work. And what he means is I'm not giving him things to work on. Like I'm not telling him, hey, dude, you got to think through your eyelids out there. What I'm doing is removing things so that insight moment can happen for him. Mm-hmm. And it did. And it to this day, we still work on that. Like, take what you got. It's world class, man. It doesn't have to be awesome. It's good enough. You're a great fighter. And, you know, it was that moment or it was a moment, another one that I love when Brian Harmon had, um, he, he got up to 24th in the world. And he, um, he was in a situation where he was top tenning like crazy, right? And he was a top 10 machine. He'd go low and he's about, to, he's about to go on another run. I'm just telling DFSers out there. <laughs> um, and he, he had a turn around this past weekend that kind of cracked one open. And, um, but anyway, he's, he told me, he goes, you know, Doc, that's the second time this year that I had nothing and I made the cut on the number on Friday. One time I made a 20-footer. This was at Hilton. And another time the cut moved because the last guy in the last group bogeyed. And it brought me in. And both times he said, I was within a shot of the lead with nine holes to go on Sunday. Mm-hmm. See, that's a moment of realizing that you have to stay patient long enough to get on a streak. We want It's like if we're playing craps, we want to win the first four rolls so that we have money in the bank. But how good of a craps player are you if you're getting down to your last couple chips and you can still play your strategy? The biggest wins I've had on the craps table every single time I've been down to my last chip mm. before I got it going. And it's easy to win when you're six under on you know, the first six holes. Yeah, It's a different challenge. But can you, can you be even through six, missing six straight birdie putts and still have the same commitment and the insight? That's a really sound mental game to me. And it takes time to accept the fact that I can deal with walking off this golf course to know I put myself in position that didn't go today yep. or I ran out of holes. Like I love it when a player tells me, oh, I ran out of holes because <laughs> that tells me they were getting – it was coming. They were getting yeah. on a heater. Um, and, and unfortunately, the game is a percentage game. So sometimes we do, we do that. And there are periods of months where we're playing great and the balls hit the center of the club face and our putts are coming off perfect. And for some reason, we go out there one day and all of a sudden it's like, yeah, that doesn't feel right. It just happens. Yeah. I mean, you just described, I think, almost every good round I've ever had where mm-hmm. I wasn't really thinking. And I looked back and I birdied a couple on the back and I realized, oh my God, I didn't bogey. And suddenly I was two under on the back and I ended up shooting like a 75. Yep. 74. If you, if you have good intention, if you have great intention, clear intention going into every shot and you have high level of acceptance, you can play great. I learned for me, um, if I call my shot verbally and I verbally pick out a mm-hmm. target, I don't miss. Okay. Yeah. I don't know why I don't do it putting. I don't know why, but I mean, it's funny. My partners I play with and, and one of the guys I play with in four ball events, he's always like, holy cow, if you call your shot, it may come off funky, but it hits that damn thing every time. Yeah. And you know, I may heel cut it and it'll end up there. <laughs> but if I don't have a clear process, my intention is bad. My acceptance ends up getting bad. So if you can have high intention of the shots you want to hit and high acceptance, you can be a rock star. Well, you might have just answered my last question, which was the one thing all amateur golfers should do. Yeah. I mean, have high – also eat on the golf course. Players don't eat enough on the golf course. Mm. Um, 
you know, you're, you're dealing with a sport that is a high level cognitive skill to a lot of physical timing and psychological timing and a psychological awareness. So amateurs don't eat on the golf course either. Um, and tour players don't, I mean, they're all too lean, you know, they need to look like me a little bit more, but <laughs> the reality is have high intention and high acceptance of every shot you're going to hit. And if you even have to tell yourself, screw it, I don't really care if you have to play that game. We won our member guest one year and it's a massive event with like 168 players. So it's got 80, wow. no, it's 124 teams. Mm-hmm. So it's spread over two wow. boards, massive. Yep. Well, we won it. And I had been, I had taken some lessons from a guy who um, was a top, top instructor, but it was really, really bad. And I had lost all my speed and all my, all my um, distance. And I, my handicap had ballooned to a six. Well, about three weeks prior to that, I found it. I got, I went, I left him. I went back on my own. I figured it out and I went back to being an athlete. And all of a sudden I started playing great golf. Okay. And I had a lot of strokes. I felt bad. Yeah, that's the dream. That's a dream. Okay. <laughs> but it, it had cost me a lot of money to get to those, that six yeah, handicap. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we go into the event and I, I play with my father-in-law who's a great guy. And I always say, I told him that year, I said, look, I'm playing so bad right now. We have no shot of winning this thing. Let's enjoy every dinner. Let's enjoy every meal. Let's enjoy every group we're playing with. Let's see. We got in the playoff and it was the fourth round, third round of the playoff, whatever. It's a deep playoff. He's like, oh, we're, I said, we're not going to win. And I know people are like, you got to be positive. What I was doing was one is for me, I was lowering my expectations. And for him, mm-hmm. I was lowering it too. It's like, let's enjoy this time. I and mean, how many other son-in-laws and father-in-laws get to play golf and the member guests together? My dad's passed away. He's a great guy to play with. I love playing with my father-in-law. So I made it about the experience yeah. and we won. Okay. And it was fun. And it was, it was a great memory for the both of us the reality was it came from us just accepting the fact that how much control do we really have over that outcome totally. in golf? We have very little control. So if we can accept that and go play and we can go give it our best, then we have a better chance of success. That makes me think of a story. The last thing I'll say is yeah, that a member good. guest. Um, I noticed that, you know, my, my best bud is one of the best players growing up in Missouri one of the top amateurs with Scott Langley as the other one. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he's always been, you know, the best player at that club. And I would always put pressure on myself uh, to match it, even though I know there's no way I'm going to match him. And I realized every time I played with him at this country club in St. Louis, I never played good. I yeah. never, I always saw the course is really hard because I'm used to LA golf where you can kind of spray it all over the place. Mm-hmm. In St. Louis, you got thick rough and trees everywhere, and if you miss a fairway, you're behind the eight ball. Right. And the and the and last year, I took a brand new outlook, and I said, you know what? I've never really looked at this course's beauty. I know this sounds a little bit foo foo or whatever, but mm-hmm. I said, you know what? I'm gonna see the beauty in this course, and so I started noticing trees. I started noticing water features. I started noticing all these things, and what that did for me is it allowed me to appreciate the experience similar to what you just said. Well, it's something that I've done. I, I realized a couple of years ago that when I war- when I was pitching, I could warm up in eight to 10 pitches mm-hmm. because at that time in my career, I'd kind of lost my mechanics and I developed this weird mechanical thing, but it was after an injury. It's what had to happen. So I, I started realizing, why do I go out in the practice range and hit a whole lot of balls? I may not hit a lot of balls in between the week, but, I know I can do some stuff. So what I do now is I love 
when we tee off at 8.15, I love getting there at 6.30 in the morning for breakfast. I sit around with the guys. We talk a lot of trash. We have a lot of fun. We hang out with the chef who comes in specially for us just because <laughs> we tip him, but it's because he makes the best breakfast in town. And he's an asset. So we go in there and we, we don't miss, right? We sit around, we talk, we laugh. And I'll look at my watch at maybe 7.40. It's like, okay, we got to go. And I'll go up on the range. And at a tournament, I'll go sit in the cart for a little while up at the range. And I'll just sit and watch people. And I'll just take in the sunrise. I'll just take in the moment. Because I don't want to be in a hurry. And I'll take a couple. I mean, I'll take the same four clubs up to the range. You know, I do the same thing. I hit a couple balls. I usually hit two or three drives. It's good what enough. What clubs do you take? I take a 58 wedge, I take an eight iron and I'll take my driver. Okay. And sometimes I'll take my driving iron. My two iron depends on how I'm hitting it. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I'm, if I need to loosen up, if I'm tight, I'll go to the chipping green first and just hit some pitches to the open ground. I don't like people to warm up with their 58. Um, I like people to warm up with their wedge. So I'll start with a wedge or an eight iron and start hitting shots if I'm loose enough. Mm-hmm. But I, it, there's no reason as to why I take those clubs. You know, like I know people like, we play your first hole on the range. I don't care. Because what do you do if the tee box is moved? Oh my God. Or, you know, make sure you hit the first iron you're going to hit. Our, on one of our courses, our first, our second hole is a, a brutal par three over water. Like, I know it's already different. Like, I already yeah. know it's a different feel. Yeah. And so I just go out there with the attitude that I'm loose. And then I go, I do the same thing when I go to the putting green. I hit some pitches off the tight grass right where you walk up. I want it as hard and tight as possible because I used to have the chipping yips and I taught myself how to chip again. So I go to the hardest part first because if I'm chipping it well there, I don't need to worry about anything. Yeah. And then I go hit some putts always uphill to, you know, five, 10, 18 feet, just rolling it. I don't care if they go in or don't. I'll hit a couple long ones and then I go sh- sh- uh, talk and horse around with the guys that are waiting to go. In other words, what I'm saying is I know I'm, I can go play. Like I don't need to feel a certain way going to the first tee. Totally. Now that's me. That's me. But what I'm doing is I'm taking in the moment and I'm just relaxing. I enjoy playing. And my kids are now at the age where they're 23 and 19. And so I'm at that age now where I can go play two or three times a weekend when I used to just beg for one day in the weekend. Right. right. Now I can go play. And I just love the camaraderie and the teamship and the music's playing and we're having a good time with the pro and we're talking trash and we're getting the bets right. And we're who's taking on who. And you know, that's the fun stuff. Like, I don't care. I mean, you know, my wallet, I keep the cash in there of what we win and what we lose. And that's what I pay for lunch for the week. Like it's okay. Like it's fun. And, um, and, and I think when I started realizing that my score started dropping, Yeah. like I don't care about how many birdies I have to make or, you know, I was like, Hey, I'm going to make a couple birdies and some days I'm gonna make none. Some days I may make five or six. Yeah. You know, I don't care if I, if I, like the other day I had six birdies and I shot even. Okay, and everyone's like, "Oh my God, what happened?" I'm like, "It's just golf, man. It's not yeah. what I do for a living. I teach yeah. it, but I don't." I've never tried. I've never made a birdie by trying to make a birdie. No, I mean, I want to get the ball. I, I've pl- working for Billy. You do a lot of practice rounds with Brant Snedeker because he also works with Todd Anderson, and mm-hmm. I mean, Brant's just such a brilliant putter, and Brian and Pat and Kazire is too. Watching them putt, their speed is always remarkable. Pat Brant's ball tends to have a heavy ball at the hole. So the speed's always right. And if he misses a putt though, he just, you know, he's like, whatever, just roll me another one. Okay. And what I've realized is I'm going to get, I'm going to give it the best intention I can. Okay. And we, we started a game in our group. It's a little bit like snake where, you know, three putts and the last person owns pays, but we did something different where if we're playing wolf or four ball or you know, a five and two game or something like that. 
we, we do it by dots and trash and everything. Mm-hmm. And we're all low handicaps. So the trash is fun, but we started something that we call whip creams, we call them whippies. And what it is, is it's a cumulative three putt game per person. So my first three putt is a dot. My second one is two dots. My third one is three dots. My fourth one is four dots and more, but we also do the opposite. We do that for birdies. And so we have to give away those dots mm. to the team, but a birdie also accumulates first, second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth. Well, what, what happened is it made us all a better player because the trash talking about the whipped creams are more important than anything else. Totally. Because we want to be able to come in and say, dude, you had five whippies today. And yeah, guys that are brilliant putters and just some days it gets in your head where it's like, oh my God, I can't get the speeds down. And we don't give anything. I mean, I don't care if it's three inches because the other team is razzing you trying to get that one dot. Right. That maybe the, but what it's done is it, it's relaxed everybody to have a good time. And, yep. and to realize that there's a lot of ways to score. I think, it, I guess, long answer to that is, you know, go out there and play the game as if it's your dance with the game. Don't go out there and play as it's your validation of yourself in the game. Nobody cares. You, you don't do this for a living. You don't, the guys that do it for a living don't wrap their, their self around the validation for the most part. They know how hard it is. They know how volatile it is. They know that they're playing on an edge. Okay. Um, and that's what makes it even more remarkable is to to look at shots that those guys hit out there, guys and girls, um, with such respect because they're trying to achieve. Um, we need to take that same attitude. For sure. Well, Brad, I know we went over an hour, but it's easy to talk about this stuff and I love doing it. So thanks so much for coming on. Um, for me. If you guys don't follow Brett, follow him at Dr. Brett, B-H-R-E-T-T, McCabe, two C's. Anywhere else you want to send people to learn more? You can go to the mindside.com and that's just T-H-E-M-I-N-D-S-I-D-E.com. Um, and if you're a coach or uh, anybody like that who leads other individuals, I have a new system I call the Catalyst School. So you can go to that as well, the catalystschool.com. Uh, there's information on that. And, and if you have any points on social media or want to follow up, I answer all my DMs and um, love doing it. And it's an honor to work in the game and it's an honor to come on a podcast like yours and talk about it. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Brett. Stay well and uh, hopefully talk to you soon. We'd love to have you on again. Absolutely. Anytime. All right. Take care.